The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Thank you. I'm Marie Biancuso. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm born to be breastfed, where we aim to, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little tongue-tied here tonight, and I don't even have a a breastfeeding (laughs) tongue-tie. I am here to uh, bust the myths and clarify the facts, and uh, tonight I have with me a very joyful woman. Her name is Tara Haley. Tara, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Marie. Tara is the author of a new book that's coming out tomorrow, actually, and her book is called The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. So when I asked Tara to come on the show, one of the things that I noticed is that Tara has some very unusual things to say. And so I would like to help you to appreciate her in a light, which is, I I have not read Tara's new book, and in fact, it hasn't been released yet, so I have not read Tara's new book. But anyway, um, I have the distinct feeling that this is not going to be an ordinary woman uh, uh, book, because I don't think she's an ordinary woman. I think that she's going to be able to enlighten you with some things that are perhaps things that you haven't thought about. For example, speaking of lighting or illuminating or enlightening, I want to talk about daylight savings time and its effects on parents and children. Tara, go for it. Well, I like to call the spring forward daylight saving time the worst day of the year for parents. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the worst of both worlds because you're dealing with your kids shifting their sleep schedules, but you're also dealing with your own exhaustion losing an hour. At least in the autumn you gain an hour even if you have to deal with the, you know, the, the kids rising a little earlier. Um but it's an hour does make a pretty significant difference. And I think most parents can relate to the idea that when daylight savings comes along and they're trying to put their child down for the regular bedtime routine um, or an infant, I mean, it's true for infants all the way, all the way up once they have that schedule, then um, it, it's frustrating because they're just not as tired as they ought to be. It's an hour earlier. Um, it's like jet lag, you know. Um, so it it is challenging but there are ways to sort of plan in advance for it so you can you know gradually try and shift it a little bit early each day that the routine um, some people use melatonin to try and reset their kids uh, schedules that can work but it's doesn't work for all kids um, so there's several different options but 
honestly, I think just acknowledging that that day is a real pain is is part of it because then you feel a little bit of uh, camaraderie with your fellow suffering parents for that week. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think I was telling you earlier today that when I really feel it is when I'm traveling and I'm already in the wrong time zone. And, you know, truly, I, I remember one time coming from the east, the west coast eastward, traveling across two time zones, and plus we had the, I, don't, I can't remember now if it was the spring ahead or the fall back, but anyway, honestly, by the time I got back to the Washington, D.C. area where I'm based, I felt like I'd lost molecules of myself along the way. Yes. And, it, the jet lag can be rough for kids as well traveling. Oh, yes, absolutely. So uh, do you have any other recommendations for us other than try to gradually shift your child into, you're thinking like, you know, 15 or 20 minutes at a time for a few nights? You could do that. Another more, I'll call this, um, let's see, what would you call this? Like, um, this is either the lazy parenting version. I'm a big fan of lazy parenting. Okay. Um, or or the, uh, the ninja parenting version, depending on your perspective. But if you can have your child skip a nap that day, if, they, if they're still napping and they skip a nap, that actually might be enough that they want to go to bed a, an hour earlier and boom, it's done. Uh, it depends on your kid. It depends on your kid's nap schedules. But that's another thing that a lot of parents can try is just whether they're taking one nap a day or two naps a day, try and uh, skip that nap. And, you know, they're going to be cranky that day. That day is not going to be fun. So I'm not suggesting that this is, is right. you know, a fun way to do it. But it might be easier to kind of get them back on track quickly. Um, it, 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 it will often depend on your kids, though. A lot of it's experimentation. Sure. Well, and certainly the age of your child, although pretty much uh, remind me, but I think that your children are two years and five years old. That's correct, yes. Yeah. So, so therefore, if it's six years old, you're probably not going to wander into that neighborhood tonight. No, probably not. <laughs> Although it was the five-year-old who drove me crazy on Daylight Savings this year. He was, oh my gosh, that was insane. <laughs> so. You know, truly, I have just never thought about the impact that it has on kids, but you're just totally, absolutely right. I'm just usually thinking how I feel, and that's, you know, kind of bad enough for me. Mm-hmm. Tara, I want to talk more today about technology. You had so many interesting things on your blog site and by the way, for those of you who have not discovered Tara previously, she maintains not one, not two, but three blogs, which I think in and of itself makes her almost superhuman. Sheesh, <laughs> uh, you know, I can barely keep up with two. And, uh, but there's some other things that she has there that are particularly interesting and really caught my eye. One was, Tara, you talked about the American College of Pediatricians. And I've spent pretty much my whole career talking about the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is a whole other organization. Tell us about each and what you feel the differences are and why you feel it's important to make those distinctions. Sure. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics is the group that most people are familiar with, and yep. they have been around for many, many years. I, I don't know exactly when they started, but they've, they represent more than 60,000 pediatricians. Uh, they are the ones who write the boards. When a person is board certified, they're the ones who write those boards. Yep. And they also have the, um, 
uh, the Fellow of an American Academy of Pediatrics designation, which means that they have the additional, you know, they're keeping up with their continuing education credits there. If so, you see um, it in your pediatrician, it's F A A P. Uh-huh. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and they are, they, they have, oh my gosh, hundreds of policy statements that they put out every year or they, up, well, they have them out there and then they update them as new evidence comes out. Yeah. Pretty much uh-huh. anything you can, I mean, some of them are, are so specific you'd be surprised. They actually have a policy statement on kids riding in carts in grocery stores. I mean, that's how specific, oh. <laughs> that's how specific they get. I mean, it's, oh, it's kind right. of incredible the things they have. Um, and they are I follow very... the infancy ones, but I, and and I follow a little bit more of it. But I had no idea they went up to the oh, good grief! Yeah, no, it, it, yeah, no, it's it's all the way up to uh, to age eighteen. And goodness, it, it, they have one on trampolines and bouncy houses. I mean, oh, they just what they I cover it for. all. <laughs> and it's all based on evidence. I mean, they they really scour the evidence. They have a lot of committees that meet annually to go over the evidence. And they issue these policy statements always with a technical report, which thoroughly investigates what the evidence is and lists it and outlines it. And this, you know, people can access most of these. Um, And then there's the American College of Pediatricians, which is a much smaller group. It's not clear how many people are in it. It's probably between 100 and 200 based on a couple of press accounts that where they answer the question. They are brand new and I'm, I don't, I'm trying to think of when they first started. It's, it hasn't been that long. It may have been one decade, if that. And the founding of it is actually kind of interesting. They, um, they began with an argument within the American Academy of Pediatrics over the uh, benefits and risks of same-sex marriage to children, whether or not cha- you know p- children should be raised in um, oh same, in home- yes same-sex households yes and yeah. so uh-huh. they they broke off and, and believed that the evidence said something different than what the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, determined and they tend to be a more conservative organization in the sense that their their policy statements tend to line up more with what you would hear um, from conservative uh, groups and. What becomes challenging is that their ideology tends to override the evidence at times. And, and one example of that, for example, is, is the HPV vaccine. Um, they, they suggest that the HPV vaccines, rec- you know, being, receiving it increases the likelihood that uh, girls will be sexually active. And, and that's actually been debunked many times. But you can see where that might line up with a concern about uh, a legitimate concern about sex before marriage. So I'm, I'm trying to I don't want to be super political. Here. No, no, it's <laughs> um, OK. But um, but I mean, it's a um, you know, it is it's a, it's an organization you have to be cautious about because what they present as the evidence is not always the complete evidence base, which is what mm-hmm. you get from the AAP. So you need to, it's not that they're, that you should completely dismiss them, but you do need to look at what they're putting out with a very critical eye and consider that they are coming from an ideological perspective. Let me just interject here that uh, while we usually think of the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics as being the holy grail of evidence-based medicine. Truth is, some, certainly not all, but some of their statements, they too have done some of that cherry-picking. I, I know, for instance, that when they came out in 2005 with that uh, article on pacifiers, I just about flipped my wig. 
uh, <laughs> you know, they had they had very little evidence, and clearly they had picked the evidence that they wanted to to suit themselves. Uh, they came out with another one one time where I thought that there have been major uh, randomized control trials since then. Hello. So I don't want to have listeners go away and think that the AAP is always perfect, although no, not I at all. Say they do do a good job, certainly. But, uh, Tara, I know that one of the things you're especially interested in is sleep, and I know that many people in my circles get really hyped up about the whole co-sleeping bit. Uh, what says the American College of Pediatricians? Do they say do they have a statement on co-sleeping? Do you know? I, I don't believe they do, but um, I'm I'm curious myself. So I'm actually trying to look to see if I see that because it, most of their positions have to do with ideological type positions. They have positions okay. on abstinence education, on abortion, on whether or not trans gender children like how you how you interact with or how you should treat transgender children emergency contraception so it's a lot of the same it's a lot of the hot button culture wars oh, issues uh-huh. yeah. um marijuana use marriage in the family so um i they don't have anything on co-sleeping that i'm aware of and i i actually i also get very hyped up on the co-sleeping thing that's yeah. that's something in our book where we diverge a little bit from what the AAP says in their policy statements um you know we we were not beholden to the AAP in our book so that's one of the areas where we interpret the evidence a little bit differently than they do so uh yes and you know certainly I'm not here to say that one is right and one is wrong or one is better or worse or whatever but rather just to help learners or uh, listeners excuse me I've been in the learner mode here all day long. Uh, To really help listeners to understand that just reading the evidence and just reporting on the evidence is not necessarily the whole ball of wax. You know, that people hear what they want to hear, they read what they want to read, and they make the interpretation as they see it. And I think it's really interesting that you just said that you saw this as... um, the group being more, I believe your word was hitting the hot button issues. Yeah. Uh, so that's really interesting, and we'll really have to keep an eye on that. I have to say that I have not been aware of that group like ever until I read it on your website. So I definitely got a big dose of um, information there <laughs> that I was thinking, okay, so I got to get, get together here. That, that was the purpose of the post, actually. I, I threw that post together relatively quickly because there was some misinformation about the uh, HPV vaccine. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm here today with Tara Haley. We'll be right back after this short break. life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you enjoy listening to Marie Biancuso? 
Do you think your staff would enjoy listening to Marie? As the past president of Baby Friendly USA, Marie currently offers baby-friendly training programs, online only, live only, or a combination of live and online education. If you are tired of listening to a boring lecture in a dark room, watching bullet point slides with a brief chance for questions at the end, come and enjoy a truly interactive learning online or live program with Marie. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894 to find an option that works for your staff. Breastfeeding Outlook, owned and operated by Marie Biancuso, is America's premier provider of breastfeeding education. If you're a nurse, lactation consultant, dietitian, midwife, physician, doula, or other professional, Breastfeeding Outlook is your source for SERPs, nursing contact hours, and CEUs to meet your certification or licensure requirements in all 50 states. Join Marie at a seminar in one of many U.S. cities or learn online. Marie has helped thousands to pass the IBLCE exam on the first try, and she can help you, too. Call to find out how to get an easy payment plan for Marie's IBLCE exam prep course. And if your hospital is seeking the baby-friendly hospital designation, we can help you with that, too, through expert training and value-based consultation. We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, and I'm here today with my special guest, uh, Tara Haley. She is the author of The Informed Parent, and that book will be released tomorrow, so please make sure that you're on the lookout for it. Tara, I know that there are a number of things that you've covered in your book. Uh, you've certainly talked about breastfeeding. You've talked about sleeping. You've talked about uh, a number of things, one of which is vaccines. I don't want to get too deep into this, but there is something that really caught my eye on your blog, and that was you really went into a fair amount of detail on the difference between the U.S. vaccine schedule and other countries. Talk to us about that. Yes, the U.S. is really unique among most developed countries because of our healthcare system. We are an all-private system except for Medicaid and Medicare, Uh and um, so we're a combined system. Most systems are either all-private or all-public, and we're sort of a mix, and and there are some other places that are a mix. Australia also has some, they have a social healthcare system, and then they also have the option for private insurance, and and some others do as well, Uh but the fact that we have a different healthcare system influences the way that our recommendations get made for vaccines. And I'll give you a good example. In England, for example, they do not recommend routinely the chickenpox vaccine. 
it's not one of the ones that's on the official recommended schedule of the UK NHS, the National Health Service there. Uh-huh. Here in the United States, we do routinely recommend the chickenpox vaccine. It's called the varicella vaccine, and the CDC does routinely recommend it. So why? What's the difference? Um, in England, if they routinely recommend it, that means that the whole country pays for it. They're, the, you know, it, it actually costs money to to distribute all of those and they have made the determination that the cost of the vaccine is greater than what the benefit would be in terms of the costs of taking care of children who get chicken pox. Mm. Um, so, and they also have a much smaller population than the U S which means that they're not having very many children dying of the chicken pox right. here in the U S before we had the chicken pox, vaccine, we had approximately 100 children each year dying from the chicken pox, which, you know, with 5 million births each year, that's a small number, but it's not small to the people it's happening to, obviously. And so um, given that the only money that the CDC has to be concerned with in their cost benefit analysis is the Medicaid money. So it's not, you're not, they're not having to pay for every single child. They're paying for the low income children and then the insurance companies that are private are picking it up for the others. So it's a different cost benefit analysis. It actually gives the U.S. a little bit more freedom in, in looking, in relying more on the scientific evidence base and less on the need to look at cost benefit in terms of the money, which is good because they can look at the health cost benefit ratio instead. Um, another difference will relate to what is a, what, what's circulating in the country. So for example, here, We've had the meningitis ACBY for quite a while, but we haven't had a recommendation for the meningitis B vaccine. We now have it available, but it's still not routinely recommended. And that's important because we don't have enough cases of meningitis B in the country to justify the potential risk of adverse outcomes. So if you only have five, six people getting it each year, but you give it to five million people, then the number of of risks will be greater than the number of people getting sick. So we don't routinely recommend it. However, it is routinely recommended in England and some others. I I believe it is in England. I would have to double check it. But where the meningitis B incidence is much higher, they have much more, they they have many more infections proportionally than we do here. So they will be more likely to use it there. And in fact, when we had our outbreak at Stanford University here, we had to bring in meningitis B from the other countries. The FDA did a special thing where they were able to make an exception and bring those in for the students because of the outbreaks that were occurring. So it, it really depends on individual country factors, both the cost benefit analysis in terms of money and in terms of the number of cases that they're trying to keep low. It's all sort of a balancing act. When you look at those comparisons, Tara, how do you feel about that in terms of just from the uh, perspective of being a parent? Would you rather be a parent in the U.S. or be a parent in the U.K.? Um, I, on, I think that it works both ways in that there, until, now that the meningitis B vaccine is available here in the U.S., parents have the option of giving it to them. I think it was a shame when they didn't have the option of it before. Yeah. I, yeah. I think the CDC, I, I trust their evaluation of the evidence. And from what I've looked at, I think it's reasonable not to make it routinely recommended to, to leave that decision up to the parents. Um, it's not a, a pressing public health concern in the way that measles is, for example. Right. Um, 
the the downside of living in a place like England is that you can get the varicella vaccine, the chickenpox vaccine, but you have to pay out of pocket for it, just like you have to pay out of pocket here for the meningitis B. So I'm not I'm not sure I could say that one is better than the other. Um, all of the countries allow parents opportunities in some form or another to opt out of the vaccines, except for the three states in the U.S. that have um, no non-medical exemptions. But for the most part, if a parent had a concern or if a, if a child had a medical condition that was contraindicated, then they can, they can opt out of that. And that's fairly standard throughout the different countries. Well, speaking of different countries, talk to us about something I had never heard of, which you also blogged about, which was the, I believe I'm saying this right, the uh, cuddle and kind uh, <laughs> movement or the cuddle and kind dolls. I'm not sure which. Uh, cuddle, I think it's a, I actually don't know how they pronounced it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's okay. Cuddle, cuddle, yeah, cuddle plus kind. Um, so I, I call them cuddle kind. Um, yeah, the, the, um, the folks who were behind this, Jennifer and Derek Woodgate of Milton, Ontario in Canada, they, um, I, I'm trying to remember now what the story was, but they had been interested in trying to help uh, address world hunger in a way that got other people involved. And they developed these adorable little dolls, um, and they sent me one sample that I was able to kind of see what it was like. And, I, and I'm glad they did because... I couldn't tell how soft it was until I had it in my hands. And I was like, wow, this really is soft. They're really <laughs> well-made dolls. Oh, nice. What's neat about these dolls is not only do does the purchase of each doll contribute 10 meals through the UN World, Pro, World Food Program, but the dolls themselves are actually made by women in, I think it's in Peru. Um, so it's, it's working on both ends for people. And so that's a really nice um, – it's a nice way to support – both the supply and the demand side, I suppose. Um, and uh, I, so I wrote about it because I thought it was a really great program and I was impressed that the parents, Jennifer and Derek Woodgate, who came up with it, I was impressed that they had done their homework. There's a lot of people who want to help out and they have good intentions, but they don't do their homework to realize how they can actually help and not inadvertently hurt. And this couple really did their homework. They... they um, paired up with the UN and with Children's Hunger Fund and the fact that they visited Peru multiple times and made oh, sure that nice. they were made by women with, you know, good working conditions that were fair, fair wages. So it was, I was very impressed with the research that went into ensuring that this was a truly humanitarian and not just a feel-good kind of program. And the dolls are, are adorable. So... <laughs> Kara, I want to go back to the part about them being, as you said, really, really soft. What are they made out of? Do you mean like like the entire feel of the doll, or do you mean the, the texture of the clothes on the doll, or what do you mean? Well, they're all made, they're knitted together, and they, oh, they nice. yeah, it, it's actually squishy. Like, they don't look squishy when you look at the photo of them, but they're really, really, I mean, it feels like a, um, Oh gosh, like an agora sweater. I mean, it doesn't. I know it doesn't look like it, but they're super soft to touch, yeah. and they're soft, squishy. So they're they're both kinds of soft. I mean, well, I would totally yeah. cuddle with this in bed. It is that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anybody follows me around in my real life, they would know that I knit, and so I'm always very interested in wools and cottons. And uh, in Peru, when you said Peru, my first thought was that there's really very lovely yarn that is spun in Peru, mm -hmm. and 
even with cotton, you know, we, we notice that with any of these natural fibers, which is what I'm guessing these dolls are made out of, they're not all created equally. And right. so this just sounds to me like this is just so much of a win-win. It's win in terms of using local textiles, I would presume, and yes. employing women and being able to uh, sell them for a good cause. And, oh, by the way, <laughs> at the end of the day, the end user is the kid who's going right. to be able to, as you say, cuddle with these dolls. And I get such a charge out of it that you say, I would so cuddle with this. That's yes. just- and, and I can tell you that my son, my he was four when I first got this come in. He immediately loved it and was squeezing it. So it, it definitely passed the kid test in our house. Oh, well, passing the kid test is what it's all about. Hey, listen, everybody, don't go away. I'm Marie Biancuto with Born to be Breastfed. We'll be right back after this short break. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you enjoy listening to Marie Biancuto? Do you think your staff would enjoy listening to Marie? As the past president of Baby Friendly USA, Marie currently offers baby-friendly training programs, online only, live only, or a combination of live and online education. If you are tired of listening to a boring lecture in a dark room, watching bullet point slides with a brief chance for questions at the end, come and enjoy a truly interactive learning online or live program with Marie. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894 to find an option that works for your staff. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed. I'm here today with author... Tara, Tara Haley. Haley. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of your co-author's name there for a moment. I was like, well, uh, yeah, we have, have we mentioned her yet? It's Emily Willingham. She's she's wonderful. She's also a science journalist, and she has a PhD in developmental biology. So um, we were a wonderful pair for this book. Well, indeed, uh, both authors for the informed parent. And as I told listeners earlier, Tara just has a whole lot of unusual and interesting things to say, which is why I suspect that her book will be the same. Tara, you talk about getting in bed with gadgets. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about what those gadgets would be and what impact they have on the baby or the child and the parents. Well, um, gadgets could be anything from iPhones and, and Android phones to iPods to, um, you know, any kind of tablet or iPods or, I mean, all of those things, uh, 
you know, portable DVD players, your computer, anything that is electronic, which we all know, I mean, these days it's even your Fitbit or your, yep. <laughs> your, your Apple Watch. I mean, um, and these have certainly made our lives easier in many ways, but I don't think there is any technology that hasn't come with trade-offs. And that is, that is true for this form of technology as, as well. Most people think of the trade-off of texting while driving, the fact that we now have that increased danger and we didn't have that before. Um, but there are also health concerns in the way that you use these gadgets late at night. Um, they mostly emit blue light. And blue light is the spectrum that the sun mostly, I mean, it's, it's the closest of light that we have, of, um, the closest of artificial light that we have to the sun's light. And our brains are wired to respond to the sunlight as setting our circadian rhythms. Right. So when you are looking at these gadgets in bed, and I am not going to deny that I too many times will pick up my own gadget <laughs> in my bed, I'm, I'm no better than anyone else here, um, you know, I'll sit there and play solitaire or I'll check yep. Facebook for a moment or, or I'll text somebody. I mean, you know, um, you know, what that's doing each time is it's it might I, it's not that it's directly confusing your brain, but it is it can, it can have the effect over time of pushing back your circadian rhythms or making you a little bit more tired, making it harder to fall asleep. And children are also very susceptible to this. Um, it can children. Well, what happens is you, when a child is using those screens, any kind of screen, and that includes TV, but it's also iPads and iPods and, and tablets and LeapFrog and, you know, all the different, or the LeapPad, excuse me, the LeapPad, which our, our kids have and, and a, a Kindle Fire, all of those. You've got a couple things going on. One is the light, which is telling the brain that it's still light out in a sense. I mean, it's not truly because you have the ambient darkness, but... Right. Um, that has the potential to kind of push back the melatonin release in their brains, which makes it harder for them to fall asleep. And then they get less sleep and, and sometimes less efficient sleep. There's also the excitement of it. Um, I'm sure everybody here who has seen Die Hard or Jaws or, you know, any other, you know, some of those exciting movies, you, you, don't, you don't exactly watch Die Hard and then just jump in bed and fall asleep because you're pretty right. wired. And that is true as well for kids um if they're watching something really exciting and fun their brain becomes engaged and that's great when it's during the daytime but at nighttime you want your child's brain to be winding down you don't want it to be really engaged with um you know thinking about new ideas and you know kind of going off and 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 keeping them up in the way that so many of us are familiar with so that's those are things to consider with the gadgets but i do have to include my own confession which is that my older son, not my younger son, fortunately, my older son always had a hard time falling asleep. And the only way we got him to sleep was looking at little documentaries on YouTube as he fell asleep. So, you know, I, I can't preach this and every child's different. So then we're at the stage of the game of Mama spends all this time reading all of this research and evidence based and all that stuff. And then she lets her kid go to bed with YouTube. <laughs> Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, I was just going to say it's not only the you attacked the visual aspect, but I was just thinking that last night at two o'clock in the morning, I woke up because I got one of those AccuWeather uh, weather alerts, uh-huh. and it gives me a little ding, and I'm thinking, ah, you know, why did I? Why do I let myself be disturbed by those things? Right. How silly of me. Uh, so. Tara, what about, uh, I have read somewhere in my distant past that 
those things also give off something or other that interferes with brain function. Is there any truth to that? Do you know? There's not any truth in the idea that there's like, uh, like some of them looked, have been concerned about radio waves, for example. Yeah. Off. yeah. And there's no truth to that. We, we, are, we are kind of walking through and swimming in waves every day and there's no risk. I think sometimes that people have been concerned about risk of cancer, for example, or developmental uh-huh. issues. And yeah. there's no evidence to support that. There is evidence that interrupted sleep or interrupted concentration could be an issue. So simply waking up because of that ding is that is actually a greater risk than just having it, the, the cell phone up to your brain. By your bed. Okay. Yeah. All right. But there is another one we haven't discussed that I think is important, which is that children learn from watching their parents. We all know this. Okay. And that includes media diets. So if you are a parent who's sitting at the dinner table and while you are all eating dinner, you're sitting there checking your Facebook real quick in between, your child learns that that is an acceptable thing to do. And it's, it, it, it can cut down on the kind of personal interaction and warmth that you want to develop in the family. Um, and then there's the concern about, you know, when the parents are so engrossed in their cell phones that they're, they're literally not paying attention to something that's happening. So I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to shame parents who are, I mean, I'll go to the playground and be sitting there looking at Facebook because I, I can see the kids out of corner of my eye and they're fine. But there is something to be said for monitoring your own media diet and, how your children are learning from your example. Well, you just totally led me into a question that I wanted to pose. Do you think that parents spend more time on Facebook immediately after they've had a baby? Well, if my N of 1 study of (laughs) E is any indication, (laughs) that is a resounding yes. Um, I've not seen any empirical evidence of that, but I would be amazed if we didn't see that. For people who are already on Facebook... And for me, it was a lifesaver because I was up nursing at, you know, two, four, six o'clock in the morning. And there's not much on TV at that time. And, not, you know, you're not always nursing long enough to catch a full length TV show and, or, or you do. And then you get into the half of the next, you know, but um, the phone presents a nice uh, diversion for that, especially if your baby is not really looking at you. I mean, sometimes you want the the eye contact and the one-to-one with your child while nursing. But at two o'clock in the morning, you know, when it's dark in the room and you're exhausted, it's a way to kind of stay up and stay connected. And it also, there's a lot of camaraderie that way. I've Mm -hmm. often been up late at night on my own, independent of my children. And some of my friends who have just had babies, they will be the ones posting right then. I mean, I'll, I'll know that they're up nursing because they post something. One time, Actually, this was lovely with my most recent child. My sister had her son one month before I did. So she had her son in February and I had mine in March. So our kids were almost exactly the same age. And there was one night in the, um, I was on Facebook and I saw my sister post something and I sent her a text and said, oh, you must be up. And we were both up nursing at the same time at like three o'clock in the morning and we exchanged photos of our nursing babies. And it was a nice, yeah, it was a nice moment with my sister that I may not have had if not for that kind of technology. So we think of technology sometimes as pushing us apart, but here that was bringing us together. You know, technology is like anything else. It can be used for good or used for bad. But my concern actually is that what I find is a lot of parents are so busy making sure that they get all these pictures for their Facebook page that especially in that first hour of life, in my opinion, they need to be focused on their baby and not focused on their Facebook. Am I wrong? I think that's a very reasonable perspective. I I wouldn't say 
you're wrong or right because I think it's different for each person, but I would be sad if I missed that opportunity with my child yeah. because I was looking at Facebook. So, I mean, I can speak for myself on that. Yeah, I think it's just that sometimes people don't realize that, especially during that first hour, and we've had so many guests on this show, uh, particularly Dr. Niels Bergman, but certainly others as well, who have talked about how important that is to really make that connection. In fact, I think that Dr. Bergman said, you know, uh, you're not old enough to even remember in the early 1970s when Kendall and Kloss came out and they said this is a sensitive period. Oh, actually, I read about that. That's in my... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's in my blog. <laughs> yeah, you probably weren't even born. But anyway, good that you're blogging about it. Yeah. And so Niels Bergman said on on this radio show, he said, it's a critical period. And I remember just being really struck by how that's kind of ratcheted up from being a sensitive period to being a critical period. Along those same lines, Tara, uh, can you address those sleep machine things? Yeah, there was um, there was a study. I, gosh, I guess it was about a year and a half ago that measured the volume on sleep machines. Those the sound machines that you might yeah. you, know, you play white yeah. noise. Yeah, and they found that the volume could go up considerably higher than what an infant's ears should be hearing in terms of maximum decibels. Um, oh. But there were, there's two things to consider with that, which is that, one, just because it can go up that high doesn't mean you're turning it up that high. And you also, I, my assumption is that they have it that high so that if it's, you know, put way far away from the child, they can still hear it. So it's not that you have to be worried about, oh, my gosh, I have a sound machine. Am I, you know, am I harming my child? It's more if you have a sound machine, you know, maybe you should measure the decibels, which you can do with various phone apps and get a sense of it or read the instruction and make sure you're not cranking that up at full volume right next to your, your child's ears because you may be inadvertently, um, you know, affecting their hearing if it's really, really loud. Okay. You just mentioned phone apps to measure uh, decibels. We've only got a minute or so left here, but have you found some interesting or useful apps on your phone for breastfeeding? My favorite app, the one that I used when I when I was still breastfeeding, I unfortunately just stopped breastfeeding my youngest about two months ago, um, <laughs> was um, okay. Baby Connect. Um, that was the one I used most often. Because I liked that on the nursing, I every it, it had a pumping one, which was nice because I was doing pumping as well. Wow. Um, and on the nursing, I could say which side I did, and I could, if I if I switched him back and forth, I could switch the sides back and forth. I could start left, start right, start left, start right. Um, I could put it in later. Um, I could include details um, if I needed to supplement. I could add that into that entry at the same time. So there there were lots of different ways that I could track what I was doing, and then print it out. So that was my favorite one. Okay. You said you had two. What was the other one? Um, the other one, and I'm trying to remember what it was, <laughs> because I, I actually, I, it looks like I deleted it from my phone, and now I don't oh, remember. That's <laughs> I'm <good>. so sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, well, and, you know, I should tell our listeners that neither you nor I, as far as I know, neither one of us have any uh, relationship to this. Uh, no, this, no. <laughs> Are a bunch of them <laughs> out there, and as long as we were talking about technology and technological devices, I felt like I would be remiss if I didn't at least bring that up, and I know that right. uh, you certainly have recently uh, breastfed your own child. So anyway, look at, uh, for those of you who are interested, when we come back from the break, Tara's going to tell us about her new book. So don't go away. I want you to find out all about it. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm here today with... Um, 
Tara Haley. She is the author of this new book along with her co-author. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash gooddonor. Breastfeeding Outlook, owned and operated by Marie Biancuso, is America's premier provider of breastfeeding education. If you're a nurse, lactation consultant, dietitian, midwife, physician, doula, or other professional, Breastfeeding Outlook is your source for SERPs, nursing contact hours, and CEUs to meet your certification or licensure requirements in all 50 states. Join Marie at a seminar in one of many U.S. cities or learn online. Marie has helped thousands to pass the IBLCE exam on the first try, and she can help you too. Call to find out how to get an easy payment plan for Marie's IBLCE exam prep course. And if your hospital is seeking the baby-friendly hospital designation, we can help you with that too through expert training and value-based consultation. We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm here today with author Tara Haley. She is the author of The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. Tara, uh, start off by telling us about your co-author. What's her name? And uh, I know you said it a minute ago, but let's give her uh, adequate coverage here. Yes, um, Emily Willingham. uh, She has a Ph.D. in developmental biology. And um, we are both uh, bloggers at or contributors at the Forbes Network, so you can read both of our work at Forbes. Um, and she does a lot of science journalism as well, just as I do. Um, we actually met sort of in a funny way because I was researching vaccines, and I found her work online and really liked her tone and, and her coverage and reached out to her on email, and we just developed a friendship that way. Oh, nice, because that was my next question is how did you get together with her? All right, so... Uh... Can you tell me what exactly inspired this book? Yeah, it's we we actually had different motivations. My motivation okay. was that I was in the midst of having my young children and 
I found it frustrating that I couldn't go anywhere and find information about what the scientific evidence would say about fill in the blank about what you know whatever I was wanting to know about yeah without it was it was one of two things either I could only find one or two studies and then I didn't know what all the other studies said or I was finding something that was very based on a philosophy it was the the attachment parenting philosophy or the tiger mom philosophy or the baby wise philosophy and mm-hmm. I didn't know the extent to which that included all of the evidence or cherry picked for that philosophy so when I went looking for a book that summarized the evidence about each topic with that broad context, but without telling me what to do, just giving me, it was kind of just the facts, ma'am. I just want to know the information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it didn't exist. And so I figured, well, it doesn't exist. I guess we ought to write it. And Emily, um, her, her primary motivation, as she has told people before, is that she had grown, her, her children are older than mine. She also has three boys, but her children are older. She had grown tired of all the judginess. Um, and she wanted a book that people could read and get information from without feeling like the book was promoting, again, a philosophy or telling them what they needed to do, that this is the right path and that's the right path and this is the wrong thing and that's the wrong thing. Um, it just presents the information and allows the reader to say, okay, now I know what this evidence says. I know how strong that evidence is or isn't. And now I can take that in, tan- you know, it, you know, alongside my own values, beliefs, needs, circumstances, and determine what's right for our family. Um, and I think that that's what makes our book different from a lot of other parenting books, is that we are not telling you what to do. It's not a handbook. It's not a, you should do this, and this is the best thing. It's a, here's the information. Here are some of the ways in which your brain will trick you into not believing this information. <laughs> um, we, we cover cognitive biases and, and confirmation bias, and, you know, um, and here's how strong that evidence is because some, you know, the evidence on vaccines, for example, is, is much more solid than the evidence on, you know, eating your placenta, for example, where it's oh, very, yes. you know, <laughs> not studied much at all. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we talk about the strength of the evidence, but we don't say, Hey, you should do X and that is the right thing to do because that right thing will vary for most families in some form or another. Tara, give us just a quick rundown of maybe some chapter titles so that we have a better idea of what's in this book. I mean, that's a pretty broad title, The Informed Parent. So what what is the parent going to be informed about? Yes, we well, and we do cover a lot. <laughs> we our first chapter starts with you know before pregnancy, uh, you know things to be considered when you're trying to conceive, um, and then we have our bun in the oven one, which is all those things that you should and shouldn't do, right? That you hear about, and we don't tell you what you should and shouldn't do. We just tell you what you know about soft cheese and kitty litter and flying and hair dye and all those things, um, alcohol, caffeine, dr- you know, prescription drugs, screening tests. Then we go on to delivery day being just around the corner and your, your preparation for the delivery itself, um, banking cord blood, for example, and, and circumcision and diaper choices. Then we discuss the birth day itself, and that is where we discuss a lot about um, difficulties with breastfeeding to look into um, bonding, uh, birth practices. And then we have a chapter on the first few weeks. We have a whole chapter on sleep because sleep is so big. Um, We have a whole chapter on feeding, and that includes both breastfeeding, formula feeding, teething, um, when to start solids, obesity, you know, it's quite, you know, whether or not kids, you know, what happens if your kid won't eat vegetables. And then we go on to the environment. Um, 
you know, allergies and uh, we discuss kids and guns even, you know, uh, being, you know, whether or not kids can be taught to be sort of gun-proofed and not touch things. And then we discuss screens and we wrap it up with a discussion of development um, and all of its derailments and delays. So it's, it is pretty comprehensive. Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. I, I'm thinking you had your work cut out for you. Uh, what was your favorite part of the book? Wow, that's hard. Um, I think my favorite part, this is going to sound really weird, but my favorite part was the co-sleeping section and the alcohol and pregnancy section because in both of them, I went into the book with my own preconceived notions of what I thought the evidence probably said. But since I knew that I had that, I wanted to guard against confirmation bias. And so with those two particular topics, I tried to prove myself wrong. I I read much more research on those than I did in any other section because I was determined to prove myself wrong. And as it turned out, I proved myself wrong in one case and I did not in the other case. And I felt that that meant I had done a really good job of, you know, assessing the evidence as objectively as I could. Yeah, and by the way, I will just tell you, as both an author myself and as a real live staff nurse, although I'm not staff nursing anymore, I can tell you that that's one of the things that I really struggle with, is getting past my own stuff. And really getting to, all right, now, you know, I know what my stuff is, but what does the science really say about that? So, Tara, uh, where can we find this book? How long is it? What does it cost? Tell us about it. Um, it's a little over 300 pages, and it's sold at all of your major outlets. I mean, it's on. you can order it on Amazon, on Barnes and, at Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, IndieBound. Um, we have a website you can check out at theinformedparentbook.com, and all of our references are there. So if you want to see what all oh. of our references are before you even get the book, we have every oh. single reference we used on that website, and we have a blog at that website as well. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, and, and you know, we welcome people to come by and check it out. <laughs> uh, Tara, is it available as both a hard copy and a uh, ebook? What's the story? Um, it is available as a. Um, it's not available in hardback. It's available in um, in oh, paperback. Soft. Yeah, yeah. In, in soft cover. Yeah, in, in soft cover. And I believe it's also available as an ebook, which I'm checking right now just to be for, sure, but I'm pretty sure you can purchase it as an ebook on Kindle or your preferred, um, your preferred, yeah, it's a, yeah, the Kindle price on Amazon is $16 and the paperback is thirteen forty one. So that, that's where it is right now on Amazon. It, it seems to change. So Okay, well, and for those of you who are wondering, I will also be featuring it on my own uh, website, which is www.borntobebreastfed.com. Uh, Tara, you've been a really interesting guest. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, as always, we never have time enough to do everything that we need to do or say everything that we need to say. I hope that some of you have gotten a real flavor for Tara's commitment to handling things that maybe you might not have thought of and for really digging into the science. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. If we didn't have listeners, we wouldn't have a show. So thank you so much for being here. If you're interested in books or other media that was mentioned on this show or on previous shows, check out our Amazon.com our Amazon store. Uh, It's on borntobebreastfed.com. You'll see it there. And uh, I would also say, check out our Facebook page. If you've liked this show or liked the blog or anything else, please remember to like us on our Facebook page. Leave a question if you'd like. 
And if you have questions for me or Tara or any of our past guests, by all means, do leave it. Uh, we would love to answer that. If you're a professional and you're looking for continuing education anywhere in your city or online, I have that at my professional site. That's breastfeedingoutlook.com. I'm Marie Biancuto, and I promise I'll help you to cut through the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding next Monday, same time, same channel. In the meanwhile, remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.